0: This is Philosophy Bites with me, Nigel Warburton. And me, David Edmonds. Philosophy Bites is unfunded. Please help us keep it going by subscribing or donating at www.philosophybites.com or you can become a patron at Patreon.
1: Philosophers have written a great deal about a wide range of art forms, including painting, music, drama and even photography. But what about film? Is there anything distinctive about film which makes it philosophically interesting? Greg Curry of York University thinks there is. Greg Curry, welcome
0: to Philosophy Bites. Hello. The topic we're going to focus on is the philosophy of film. Now, we're talking about feature films, movies. Obviously, Plato didn't write about the feature film. It's a relatively new discipline, the philosophy of film. What are the interesting questions that philosophers ask about film?
1: Philosophy of film is, of course, a recent subject, just as film is a, a recent medium, the youngest artistic medium that has been highly successful, and perhaps the most successful medium that there has ever been. There are a number of problems that I think are f- of interest to philosophers about film, and some of them are to do with the way in which film relates to perception. And this comes up in relation to photography as well, but film gives it an extra emphasis because of the way in which film occupies time as well as space and provides movement rather than merely static images. And you can put the central problem in the following way. We often say that we saw Cary Grant the other night in a movie... Does that mean we literally saw Cary Grant the other night when we were at the movies? We've never been in the same room as he is. In fact, he probably died some years before we even watched the movie. Is it really true that we literally saw him? There seem to be differences between seeing him that way and seeing him if he was standing in front of you in the flesh. So I fire
0: up my laptop, I put the movie on, I watch North by Northwest, and I seem to see Cary Grant. But obviously it's a kind of metaphorical way of speaking, isn't it, that I don't literally see him. It's not like he's in front of me.
1: Well, ask yourself what you would say about hearing his voice, for instance. So it's a talking film. We would say that we hear his voice as well as see him. Is that a metaphor? Well, it's not clear why that would be a metaphor, given that we're very happy to say that we hear the voice of Dietrich Fischer-Diskau when we listen to a recording of Dietrich Fischer-Diskau. That doesn't seem to be anything metaphorical in saying that. I literally hear his voice if I hear his voice, if I hear Cary Grant's voice on the audio track, I didn't hear him speaking at the time he spoke, of course, but nonetheless it seems as if I heard him, why can't I say that I saw him as well and mean that literally and not merely metaphorically?
0: I might be tempted to say that I've only heard a recording. I heard Segovia play live and I've heard recordings of Segovia playing the guitar. Now, It's different when I was there in the Wigmore Hall and I heard Segovia from when I listened to a recording of Segovia. So to be precise, although audio recording can be incredibly accurate, as I hope this one is, as to what it sounds like to be in the room, it isn't literally hearing that person.
1: There is certainly a difference between hearing somebody live and hearing them on a recording. I think it's not clear that that is a difference which should make us say that one of them is really hearing and the other one is not really hearing. It's certainly two different ways of hearing but if you said I have never heard Dietrich Fischer-Diskau's voice and then it turned out that you were extremely familiar with his recordings that would seem like a very odd thing to have said I think.
0: So there's a sense in which a recording of a voice actually captures it somehow It's like a fossil. It really is an ammonite. You really get a sense of being in touch with the voice.
1: Yes, film critics have had a similar thought. So, for instance, the famous French critic André Bazin likened films to footprints in the sand and perhaps more controversially to mummified remains so that he thought that there was a very special way in which film didn't just give us representations of reality, but that they were a means by which reality imposes itself on us, that they are a sort of way of transforming earlier realities in such a way as to make them available to us now. And that's a very attractive idea, I think, and it does make a lot of sense of some of the intuitions that we have about the difference between, say, literature and film, and also about the differences between film and painting. So, for instance, if you have a very poor quality photograph of a loved one, you're likely to invest that with quite a lot of sentimental value, probably more sentimental value than you would ascribe to a pretty decent painting of that person. So the idea is that somehow a photograph puts you in a very close relationship to a person in a way that a painting doesn't. And one explanation for that is to say, well, the photograph enables you to see the person and a painting, because of the way it's made, doesn't allow you to do that. It may have all sorts of value for you, but doesn't have quite the value that a photograph would. We've talked a little bit about how the medium...
0: Of film, the medium of the movies, as it were, raises questions about the
1: relationship to reality. What about style in the movies? When films first started being made and photography started as well, people were very worried about their relationship to painting and also to drama and the extent to which photography would make painting simply redundant, because it was now incredibly easy to produce a highly detailed image of something, and the extent to which film might simply be another way of presenting drama, that it was a kind of recording of a dramatic performance. People have taken two very, very different views about this. One view has said, well... Film has to differentiate itself from drama and it does that by using devices of cutting because film has editing and drama really doesn't have the same kind of technique. So what film should do in order to be a distinctive medium is use editing and use it to the fullest possible extent. And thus we get the sort of Soviet montage of the 1920s where you get very, very fast cutting and lots of different camera angles. And that was one way in which people felt that film could justify itself as a medium distinct from others. Completely different view from that came up really because of developments within film itself. And I'm thinking here of Renoir's film, Rules of the Game, which is, for many people, I think, the great film of the pre-war period and a great film by anybody's standards in which you see that kind of technique abandoned altogether and the development of what's called long take deep focus style and the idea there was well film is a realistic medium Bazan thought that we were able to capture reality so that film technique should be realistic in something like the following sense. It should mimic the way in which we actually perceive the world. So we perceive the world in depth, and we perceive it not in a few short glimpses corresponding to cuts, But we look around in the world. We move our eyes from one thing to another. And if you look at the camera in Rules of the Game, you see the way in which it follows two people, suddenly sees a third person moves back slightly and then starts to follow that third person into an entirely new scene, just in the way in which something captures our own visual attention and moves us from being interested in one thing to being interested in another thing. So you have these two completely different views about film style, both starting from the same premise, namely film style should be dictated by the medium, In a way, that's
0: a bit weird, isn't it? The idea that you have to have a style that distinguishes your medium from other media so that there has to be something distinctly cinematic, otherwise you shouldn't be making film at all. Why can't you make a film that's theatrical? Why can't you make a film that's painterly?
1: Yes, I think probably these days we would feel much more comfortable with that sort of a view. In the earlier days, people were just struggling to make film a respectable medium a medium that was taken seriously artistically and i think there is something at least to the idea that if you have a distinctive medium it should have qualities as a medium which you are able to exploit in ways which you couldn't do in other things now it would be wrong to say, oh, well, in that case, what we need to focus on is these medium-specific techniques at the expense of absolutely everything else. And that just seems, by our modern standards, a kind of crazy idea. But I think this battle between montage style and long take, deep focus style was an interesting one and I guess it has resulted in a kind of eclecticism about style that we see in modern filmmaking where people feel, well, for certain purposes fast editing is going to be the right thing to do and long takes and deep focus as we see in certain Scorsese movies will be the the thing to do in other contexts and you can perfectly well bring these two things together in the same movie.
0: If we talk about things which are specific to the movies, at least in contrast with photography, which is in part what film is made up of. Movies move. That's why they were called the movies.
1: Yes, this, again, has been a very controversial issue. One view which I think is more or less standard is that when we look at the screen, we certainly seem to see movement. We talk about moving images, the movies. But the view holds that that has to be understood as not speaking literally, that it's not really a moving image that we see. And one argument for that is to say, well, think about what produces that appearance of movement. Actually, in an old-fashioned movie at least, and I don't think digital film changes this much, what you have is a series of still images passing through a projector with a strong beam of light projecting an image and you do it at 24 frames a second and that gives it the appearance of movement but there isn't actually any movement on the film strip itself so the movement must be illusory. So you don't believe that? You don't believe that the movement is illusory? I don't believe the movement is illusory, I believe it's real. I think there might have to be certain qualifications made about what kind of movement is involved here but I think it's again helpful to compare this with the case of audio recording. Most of us are very happy to say that we really hear the voice of Dietrich fischer Diskow to go back to the same example when we listen to the tape. Let's say it's an old-fashioned tape. All right, take the tape out of the machine hold that bit of tape up to your ear, will you hear any sound? No. Does that mean that there isn't any sound produced by the tape when you put it in the machine? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that in order to get the sound, you have to do something with the tape, namely put it in the machine. Similarly, my view is that in order to get the motion, you have to do something with the film strip, namely put it through the projector at 24 frames a second, and the result is genuine movement.
0: An interesting feature of the movies is that, unlike with a novel, you as the user of the work can't determine how quickly you get through the thing that's more or less determined by the director unless you press the fast forward button. That's
1: right and film is as much a medium of time as it is of space and film's relationship to time is an interesting one, I guess the basic thing to say about that is that film uses time to represent time, so in order to represent a conversation that lasts five minutes, you usually have a scene that goes on for five minutes. Now, of course, cuts, editing, make a difference here because between a cut there can be implied any gap of time that you like. Sometimes the cut doesn't indicate any shift of time at all. Sometimes it can indicate a shift of years, centuries or millennia. But if you consider just a single shot itself, the duration of the shot is standardly the duration of the episode that the shot represents. So there's that very simple relationship in film between represented time and the representation of time. It seems to me the movies are particularly good
0: at evoking a feeling of the passing of time, not just
1: five minutes, but five years or 50 years. Sometimes events in movies, the duration can be highly significant. So this goes back to very earliest days of filmmaking. So if one watches possibly the earliest documentary ever made, Nanook of the North, by Flaherty, there are certain scenes in it where you see Nanook fishing, and Flaherty deliberately holds the shot for a long period of time to give you a sense of how long the process of waiting for a fish took, rather than editing it down. So actually nothing happens on screen... But it's tremendously important that the viewer should actually see that that passage of time is highly important, even though nothing's actually happening during it.
0: So the passing of time is represented by time passing, but it's not the actual amount of time passing necessarily. It's a kind of segment of that time that's used to represent that. Pasolini's
1: Gospel according to Sir Matthew is an interesting example here because in one scene, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. You see Jesus saying very familiar things, but in each shot, the background keeps changing. So the time of day whether it's dark or light, where they are, changes. And so what you have here is the idea that what turns out to be the Sermon on the Mount was actually Jesus talking on many, many occasions, which then gets dramatically edited down to a single event.
0: The topics we've been talking about are quite traditional topics within the philosophy of film. Do you have a sense that there are new topics emerging in in the
1: philosophy of film now? There's a good deal of work that's going on by philosophers which tries to show that film in general and particular films have the capacity to contribute something to philosophy itself. There are a number of people out there who want to argue that film contributes to philosophy in some kind of non-trivial way, by which I mean that film is able to do things philosophically which simply can't be done in a standardly argumentative way that we're used to in discussion and philosophical text. So it could illustrate that with a film that I think many people do regard as philosophical in some way and that's Nolan's film Memento which is extremely confusing because it moves backwards in time and the reversal of time direction is intended there to give us a sense of what the experience of the central character is like because the central character has this disorder of men- Memory, which means that they can't retain any memories beyond short-term ones. So we are constantly in the position of not knowing what has happened in the past, because from our point of view, we haven't seen it yet. That film has been put to some very, very interesting work. Some of it to do with another idea that's come up in philosophy which is the idea that the mind extends outside the brain and indeed outside the body and the character in the film is somebody because of his disability uses his own external body writing things on his body writing things on pieces of notepaper and having to use the environment to compensate for his psychological disability. And that's been very interestingly theorised by some philosophers. So I think there are important developments going on which take the philosophy of film in this entirely new direction.
0: Greg Curry, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. For more Philosophy Bites, go to www.philosophybites.com. You can also find details there of Philosophy Bites books and how to support us.